Welcome all to Curious Murmurs, a podcast that brings you macabre and gothic short stories, from the quirky to the disturbing and the grim. So sit back and listen and let the darkness consume you. A disclaimer. These stories were written in an era of intolerance of anything that was different, whether that be race, creed, what country you lived in, your sexuality, your gender, your class, anything they would write in an offensive manner. So be aware when you listen to the story that it could cause offence, that the writing style and the words that they use and the opinions that they express could cause offence. Bernice by Edgar Allan Poe Digibante mihi soldales, sit sepulchrum amici visiterum, curas mias aliquantulum fore levatas, ebdenzait. Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform, overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. Its hues are as various as the hues of that arch, as distinct too, yet as intimately blended. Overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow, how is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness? From the covenant of peace a simile of sorrow, and as in ethics, evil is a consequence of good, so, in fact, out of joyous sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. My baptismal name is Eugenius, that of my family I will not mention. Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honoured than my gloomy grey hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particularities, in the character of the family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief salon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiselling of some buttresses in the armoury, but more especially in the gallery of antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, there is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes, of which latter I will say no more. Here died my mother. Herein was I born. But it is mere idleness to say that I had not lived before that the soul has no previous existence. You deny it? Let us not argue the matter. Convince myself, I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of spiritual and meaning eyes, of sounds, musical yet sad, a remembrance which will not be excluded, a memory like a shadow 
vague, variable, indefinite and steady. And like a shadow, too, is the impossibility of my getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist. In that chamber was I born, thus awakening from the long night of what seemed, but was not, non-entity, at once into the very regions of fairyland, into a palace of imagination, into the wild dominions of monastic thought and erudition. It is not singular that I gazed around me with a startled and ardent eye, that I loitered away my boyhood in books and dissipated my youth in revelry. But it is singular that as years rolled away and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my fathers, it is wonderful that stagnation there fell upon the springs of my life. Wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became, in turn, not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed, that existence utterly and solely in itself. Bernice and I were cousins, and we grew up together in my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew. I, ill of health and buried in gloom, she, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy, hers the ramble on the hillside, mine the studies of the cloister, I living within my own heart, and addicted body and soul to the most intense and painful meditation, she roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadows in her path, or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Bernice, I call upon her name, Bernice, and from the grey ruins of memory, a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly in her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. Oh, gorgeous yet fantastic beauty, oh, Sylph amid the shrubberies of Arnheim, oh, Naiad among its fountains, and then, then all is misery and terror, and a tale which should not be told, disease, a fatal disease, fell like the simoon upon her frame, and even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and, in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim, where was she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Bernice. Among the numerous train of maladies superinduced by that fatal and primary one that effected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin, may be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature, a species of epilepsy not infrequently terminating in trance itself. Trance very nearly resembling positive dissolution, 
and from which her manner of recovery was, in most instances, startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease, for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease then grew rapidly upon me, and assumed finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form, hourly and momentally gaining vigour, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I must so term it, consisted in morbid irritability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science termed the attentive. It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear, indeed, that it is no manner possible to convey to the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of that nervous intensity of interest with which, in my case, the powers of meditation, not to speak technically, busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long, unwearied hours with my attention riveted to some frivolous device on the margin or in the typography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry or upon the floor, to lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire, to dream away whole days over the perfume of a flower, to repeat monotonously some common word until the sound, by dint of frequent repetition, ceased to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion or physical existence by means of absolute bodily quiescence, long and obstinately persevered in. Such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not, indeed, altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet let me not be misapprehended. The undue, earnest and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature frivolous must not be confounded in character with that ruminating propensity common to all mankind and more especially indulged in by persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of the propensity, but primarily and essentially distinct and different. In the one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast being interested by an object usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object in a wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom, until at the conclusion of a daydream, often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum or first cause of his musings entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, although assuming, through the medium of my distempered vision, a refracted and unreal importance. Few deductions, if any, were made, 
and those few pertinaciously returning in upon the original object as the centre. The meditations were never pleasurable, and at the termination of the reverie, the first calls, so far from being out of sight, had attained that supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of the mind more particularly exercised were, with me, as I have said before, the attentive, and are, with the daydreamer, the speculative. My books, at this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook, it will be perceived, largely in their imagination and inconsequential nature of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. I well remember, among others, the treatise of the noble Italian Cordius Secundus Cordio, De Applitudine Biti Renigdie, St. Austin's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian De Cane Christi, in which the paradoxical sentences, Mortus est de filius, credibile estque ineptum est, esuptus resurrexit, setum esquien impossibile est, occupied my undivided time for many weeks of laborious and fruitless investigation. Thus it would appear that, shaken from this balance only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken by Ptolemy Hestian, which steadily resisting the attacks of human violence and the fiercer fury of the waters and the winds trembled only to the touch of the flower called Aphostel. And although, to a careless thinker, it might appear a matter beyond doubt that the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Bernice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation whose nature I have been at some trouble in explaining, yet such was not in any degree the case. In the lucid intervals of my infirmity, her calamity, indeed, gave me pain, and, taking deeply to heart that total wreck of her fair and gentle life, I did not fail to ponder frequently and bitterly upon the wonder, working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, and were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its own character, my disorder revelled in the less important but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Bernice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, most surely I had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the grey of the early morning, among the trellised shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as the living and breathing Bernice, but as the Bernice of a dream not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as the abstraction of such a being, 
not as a thing to admire, but to analyse. Not as an object of love, but as the theme of the most abstruse, although dissolutory, speculation. And now, now I shuddered in her presence and grew pale at her approach, yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition. I called to mind that she had loved me long, and in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage. And at length, the period of our nuptials was approaching, when, upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of those unseasonably warm, calm, misty days, which are the nurse of beautiful Halcyon, I sat, and sat as I thought alone, in the inner apartment of the library. But uplifting my eyes, I saw that Bernice stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination? or the misty influence of the atmosphere, or the uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the grey draperies which fell around her figure, that caused in it so vexillating and indistinct an outline. I could not tell. She spoke no word, and I, not for worlds, could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back upon the chair, I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emaciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the former being lurked in any single line of the conchil. My burning glances at length fell upon the face. The forehead was high and very pale and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it and overshadowed the hollow temples with innumerable ringlets now of a vivid yellow, and jarring discordantly in their fantastic character with the reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lustreless and seemingly pupilless and I shrank involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the changed Bernice disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or not, having done so, I had died. That shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber, but from the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away, the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth. Not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not an indenture in their edges, but what that period of her smile had sufficed to brand in upon my memory. I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth, the teeth, they were here and there and everywhere and visible and palpably before me, long and narrow and excessively white, with the pale lips writhing about them and in the very moment of their first terrible development. 
Then came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggled in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with a frenzied desire. All other matters and all different interests became absorbed in their single contemplation. They, they alone, were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light, I turned them in every attitude, I surveyed their characteristics, I dwelt upon their peculiarities, I pondered upon their confirmation, I mused upon the alteration in their nature, I shuddered as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression. Of Mademoiselle Saleh, it had been well said, que tout ce pas éteignant ses sentiments, and of Bernice, I more seriously believed que tout ce dont éteignant des idées, des idées. Ah, here was the idiotic thought that destroyed me, des idées. Ah, therefore, it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could alone ever restore me to peace in giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus, and then the darkness came and tarried and went, and when the day again dawned and the mists of the second night were now gathering around, and still I sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth remained its terrible ascendancy as with the most vivid and hideous distinctiveness, it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, and thereon too, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing out in the antechamber servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Bernice was no more. She had been seized with the epilepsy in the early morning, and now, at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparations of the burial were completed. I found myself in the library, and again sitting there alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and exciting dream. I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Bernice had been interred, but of that dreary period that intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite, comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with the horror. Horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strived to decipher them, but in vain. While ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill 
and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of the family physician. But how came it there, upon my table? And why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular, but simple ones of the poet Ebn Zayat. Digibanti mihi soldales si sepulchrum amici visiterum, curas mias aliquanturum fora levatas. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs on my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body became congealed within my veins? There came a light tap at the library door, pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household of a search in the direction of the sound, and then his tones grew thrillingly distinct as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body, enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to my garments. They were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some objects against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it, and I could not force it open and in my terror it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound, there rolled out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white, and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor.